ان الحمد لله نحمد نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله really the praise belongs to Allah we praise him seek his assistance and forgiveness and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds whomever Allah guides there is no one that can lead him astray and whomever Allah leads astray there is no one that can guide him i bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshiped except Allah alone the creator of heavens and earth and i bear witness that muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam may the peace and blessings of allah be upon him is his servant and his messenger we like to we would like to uh, begin our talk this evening which is the fourth in our series of discussions concerning the explanation of the book entitled Usul Usunnah the fundamentals of the sunnah by al-Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah may Allah have mercy on him in the last discussion we talked about two main points that is the leaving or staying away from or abandoning the people of innovation or those who invent or innovate into the religion of Islam and we also discussed the proofs from the Quran and Sunnah and the sayings of the scholars concerning avoiding or abandoning and leaving off arguing and disputing and controversy in the religion or about matters of religion <clears throat> and previously we discussed the two most important fundamentals or principles that is sticking to the way of the companions of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that is adhering to the quran and the way of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as it was understood and practiced by his students and his companions may allah be pleased with them all and we also talked about taking them as an example and avoiding all beliefs or sayings or practices which have no foundation in the religion of Islam which have no foundation in the Quran and the Sunnah but are newly invented matters this evening inshallah we would like to continue where we left off and discuss one of the most important topics that we will cover in this book and it is the topic of as-sunnah as-sunnah al-imam ahmed rahimahullah he says was-sunnatu 'indana athar rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the sunnah with us are the athar the narrations of the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam peace and blessings of allah be upon him was sunnatu 
tufassirul Qur'an and the Sunnah explains and clarifies the Qur'an wahiya dalailul Qur'an and also the Sunnah is the guide to the Qur'an containing evidences and indications as to its meanings and correct interpretations this is very important this first point that the Sunnah the role of the Sunnah in relation to the Qur'an is that the Sunnah explains and clarifies the Qur'an and the Sunnah is a guide to the Qur'an that is to its meanings and correct interpretations so that if we follow this principle and understand this point then we wouldn't misinterpret the Qur'an or give to the Qur'an our own interpretations according to our thinking or our feeling or according to what may be the opinions of others which have no basis but in fact the Sunnah is the guide to the Qur'an it is the explanation of the Qur'an and then he says وَلَيْسَ فِي السُنَّةِ قِيَاسِ وَلَا تُضْرَبُوا لَهَا الْأَمْثَالِ there is no qiyas or analogical reasoning in the sunnah yani that means that we don't add to the sunnah something that's foreign to it qiyas meaning the analogy or comparisons that the intellect is able to make in order to derive conclusions inshallah we will give a more complete definition of al qiyas as we go on there is no analogical reasoning in the Sunnah and examples or likenesses are not to be made for the Sunnah nor is the Sunnah grasped or comprehended by the intellects purely by the intellect alone nor is it grasped or understood or comprehended by al-ahwa the desires or the personal feelings of individuals إِنَّمَا هُوَ الْإِتِّبَاعُ وَتَرْقُ الْهَوَى Verily, it consists of following following the Sunnah and depending upon it and abandoning our desires or feelings or opinions so in these few words we understand the relation of the Sunnah to the Qur'an as well as some important points about the Sunnah that personal opinion has no place in relation to the Sunnah but the Sunnah is superior and has precedence over the personal opinions or feelings or desires of the people in fact the way we should understand the Sunnah is that it is to be accepted it is to be depended upon and followed completely and our own feelings or desires should be abandoned giving precedence and priority to the sunnah of the prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam then he says wa min as-sunnah al-lazima allati man taraka minha khaslatan lam yaqbulha aw lam yaqbalha wa yu'min biha lam yakun min ahliha Al-Imanu Bil-Qadri Khayrihi Wa Sharrihi And it is from the binding and necessary Sunnah The Sunnah which whoever leaves a single matter from it Has not accepted it in its totality and has not believed in it Then he would not be from its people That is, 
of those matters of the sunnah which it is a necessity or it is binding or obligatory on us to accept it of those matters which whoever leaves even one of them and does not accept it or does not believe in it he would not be from the people of sunnah the first of those matters is the, to have faith in qadr the divine decree both its good and its evil the discussion of al-qadr divine decree is an empty discussion perhaps we may take it in the next lecture unless we are able to begin a discussion of it this evening so let us go back to the beginning of our first point of this evening al-imam ahmed says the sunnah with us are the athar or the narrations of the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam first let me say as a reminder that as we mentioned before the word sunnah has many meanings some people might understand when we say sunnah that we mean that which is not obligatory it is not wajib it is something that's not yani compulsory upon us but we don't mean that sunnah here also the sunnah as we explained previously could mean the opposite of something that is innovated or newly invented the opposite of bid'ah but we don't mean that sunnah here either but here the sunnah that we are speaking of in this sentence the sunnah indana athar rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wasallam that the sunnah with us are the athar of the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam we mean here the sunnah which is the sayings and the actions and the approvals of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that which he himself said to the people and that which he did in their presence and that which he approved of when he saw or heard from the people doing something related to the religion of islam if he didn't speak against it that meant he approved of it and it is also a part of his sunnah so the sunnah that we mean here is the sayings and the actions and approvals of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the word that is used in this book athar athar rasulillah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is one of the three common words that is used in reference to the sunnah the common word that we normally use is hadith and also another common word is khabar and the third of those words is is athar or athar each of these words have a similar meaning but the broadest of them is the word khabar it includes the sayings of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as well as the sayings of others besides him like the sahaba or those who came after them whereas athar or athar primarily refers to the sayings other than the sayings of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam yani the sayings of the companions or the sayings of those who came after them the students of the companions whereas the word hadith it may refer to primarily the sayings of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and also it may sometimes be used to refer to others besides him but it is primarily used to refer to the sayings of the prophet alone so here the word athar is used and even though it is primarily usually used for the sayings of other than the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam here he means the meaning of hadith yani the sunnah with us are the hadith or the ahadith 
of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the sayings and actions and approvals. And those hadith or ahadith are contained, they have been preserved in many books, many reliable books of reports or narrations concerning the things that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said and did that was memorized by his companions and written down also in his lifetime and after his lifetime and the most important of those books containing the sunnah or the written sunnah are the six fundamental books or al-usul al-sitta sometimes referred to as siha al-sitta but more correctly it should be referred to as al-usul al-sitta or the six fundamental books that is the Sahih of Al-Bukhari and the Sahih of Muslim and the four books of Sunan, the Sunan of Abu Dawood, At-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah and Nasa'i. Also, two of the other very, very famous and important books of Hadith is the Musnad of Imam Ahmed and the Muwatta of Imam, uh, the Musnad of Imam Ahmed and the Muwatta of Imam Malik. So these books are very good books. And we should make some effort at least to know something about them. And those who are able should try to make as a part of their library those fundamental books. And alhamdulillah, some of those books have even been translated into English, including the Sahih of Al-Bukhari and the Sahih of Muslim and the Sunan of Abu Dawood, as well as the Muwatta of Imam Malik and I think also the Sunan of Ibn Majah. So these books have been translated into English and are available in English language for those who cannot read Arabic so that we can benefit from the comprehensive knowledge of the life of our Prophet, the last of the messengers of Allah, to know how we can live in a way that's pleasing to Allah and avoid those things that are displeasing to Allah. The ahadith or the sayings and practices of the Prophet ﷺ have been divided by the scholars of hadith into three main categories and it's not possible to explain all of this in one lecture but we want to just briefly pass through it uh, just to mention so we can have some idea because during our lectures sometimes we are saying or reporting or narrating something from the Prophet wasallam, and we say this is a hadith sahih or this hadith is hasan or we might say this hadith is daif so we want you at this time, since the topic came to us in the book, to have some idea, at least in brief, what is the meaning of these words and how the hadith have been divided according to its authenticity into three main categories. Inshallah, we will discuss them briefly. The first of them, as-sahih, it is those hadith which fulfill five conditions that the scholars of hadith have set which must be fulfilled in order for a hadith to be considered authentic. The first of those conditions is continuity of the chain of narrators, or ittisal as-sanid. The chain of narrators, those people who heard the hadith and reported it to others until it was collected in the books, meaning the companion of the Prophet ﷺ who heard it, and the tabi'i who heard it from him, and the student of the tabi heard it from him until it was collected by the imams like Al-Bukhari and Muslim and others. That chain of narrators or reporters should be complete. If it is broken in any place, then it could not be considered as an authentic hadith. 
The second of those conditions is Al-Adala or the integrity of the transmitters should be unquestionable. That is, uh, they should be known to be reliable and good people in their practices and in their worship and so on. The third of them is Adbabd or accuracy or soundness of the memory of the transmitters. That is, it should be known that all of the transmitters or the reporters in any chain of narratives for hadith, uh, it should be known that their memories were very accurate in order for the hadith to be considered authentic or sahih or sound. The last two conditions of those five are a little difficult to explain, but in any case we will mention that one of them is called Adam al-Shudud, or the absence of being in conflict. It's that hadith shouldn't be in conflict or in difference with other hadith which are more authentic than it. Yani it should be in conformity or in agreement with other reports which contain the similar information. There shouldn't be any conflict between them. So that even if a hadith fulfills the first three conditions of having a complete chain and having accurate narratives and good people of integrity, if we found that hadith to contain information that is in conflict with more reliable hadith, then it wouldn't be considered sahih or authentic and it would be rejected. The last of those conditions is the absence of an illa khafiya qadiha. Yani there shouldn't be any uh, hidden defect which affects the reliability of the hadith. A hidden defect it means that there is some problem with the uh, chain of narratives or some other problem in the hadith that is not obvious or is not easy to detect. On first look it would appear as though there is no defect in that hadith, but if there is investigation by scholars, they might, after investigation, find that defect. And this kind of hidden defect, if it is found in a hadith, obviously uh, it would um, determine or it would uh, require that that hadith be rejected uh, from the class of Sahih or authentic. So these are the five main conditions for hadith to be considered Sahih. So any hadith which satisfies all of these five criteria, we would call it a hadith as Sahih or an authentic, reliable, uh, sound hadith. The second classification of hadith, it is similar to as Sahih, and we use it in the same way as the proof in our religion. It is called Al-Hadith Al-Hasan, and this is the hadith which, like the Sahih or authentic hadith, also satisfies these five conditions or criteria, except that the third of these criteria, that the narrator should have an accurate, almost perfect memory, is, is not completely fulfilled. That is, the narrator, any narrator in the chain might have a good memory, but not really perfectly accurate memory, and therefore we accept that hadith, but it is classified as a little less than the Sahih, and we call the Hadith Hassan. Like the Sahih, it is used as a proof in our religion. The third category of Hadith is Al-Hadith Al-Da'if, and that is the Hadith which does not fulfill all five of the conditions that we have mentioned for the Sahih. Uh, any one of those conditions is missing. Maybe there is a break in the chain of narratives, or there is one narrator or more whose integrity is questionable, or the memory of any one of those narrators or more than one of them is not good. He has a weak memory. 
uh, so that we cannot rely upon what he has related to us or either uh, either of the last two conditions might not be fulfilled there might be some non-conformity in the hadith it is in conflict with a more authentic hadith or there might be some hidden defect so these are the three categories of the hadith concerning uh, the classification of hadith according to its authenticity the sahih is the best of them and the most uh, reliable the hasan is a little less than sahih but it is also acceptable and those hadith which are missing any one of these five conditions then it, is, it comes under the many classifications of da'if and the classification of hadith da'if or weak hadith are many there are many uh, there is no chance to explain them all at this time but the important thing to know that if any one of the five conditions are not fulfilled, even just one of them, if it's missing, then that hadith would be classified under the third category of weak hadith or unacceptable hadith, which is called in Arabic, al-da'if. Uh, if I may just take a moment to discuss the hadith da'if, because we try uh, and we make every effort to avoid uh, relying on any such hadith or mentioning them in our discussions or relying upon them in our uh, practices, our religious practices or in our beliefs. The hadith da'if should not be used. And I think that is important here just to make a brief comment about the hadith da'if, which doesn't fulfill the five conditions or is missing any one of them because there is a great misunderstanding about hadith da'if where some people think that the hadith da'if can be used in fadail al-a'mal that is uh, it can be used as a proof or accepted as a proof or a guideline for uh, enjoining the people to doing good deeds but in spite of this uh, widespread idea that is commonly understood by many of the people we want to say that there are many scholars like Al-Imam Al-Bukhari and Al-Imam Muslim and others besides them who clarified the danger of using da'if or weak hadith and even those who allowed its use only used it with conditions and those conditions for the use of the weak hadith uh, have been mentioned in a brief article entitled the danger of using weak hadith which I will just summarize quickly and inshallah you can read that article for a little more understanding and further clarification but in brief Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajj Al-Asqalani the scholar of hadith who explained the Sahih of Al-Bukhari and he is known as Amir Al-Mu'mineen in hadith or the leader of the believers he said that there are three conditions that must be fulfilled in order to use the weak hadith the first of them is that it is well accepted that the weakness should only be slight it should be only a small insignificant weakness if that's so then that's one of the conditions that has to be fulfilled before we can use a weak hadith it should have only a slight weakness uh, this will help to exclude hadith which are reported by those who are known to be liars or who are accused of lying or those who are known to commit big mistakes or who have bad memories if it only has a slight weakness, that's one of the conditions fulfilled for the use of a, of a weak hadith or da'if. The second condition is the weak hadith should be used under already well-established principles and should not bring in ideas of its own. That means that we shouldn't use a weak hadith even though it only has a small minor weakness. 
we shouldn't use it if it contains some idea or some principle or some rule that's not already founded, that's not already based on an authentic proof, proof from the Qur'an or from a reliable hadith. And if it brings us some information that we didn't find from any other source, even if it only has a slight weakness, we cannot accept it and we cannot use it. The third condition that has to be fulfilled in order for a hadith to be used if it is considered weak is that when a weak hadith is used after it fulfills the above two conditions it should not be believed by the one who is following it or basing his practice upon that hadith he should not consider in his heart that that hadith is really a saying or a practice of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because if we were to do so then we might fall into attributing to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that which he did not say or do. If we would attribute such hadith which have even a minor weakness or uh, bring some information that is not founded uh, in the already established uh, proofs from Quran and Sunnah, uh, then we would fall into attributing something to the Prophet ﷺ which he didn't say or do, and then we would come under the threat which is contained in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which he said, whoever lies on me intentionally, then let him know that he is guaranteed a seat in the hellfire or be assured that he is guaranteed a seat in the hellfire. Uh, so, these three conditions he mentioned, and we would add, for purpose of clarification, that not only should we not believe, or should we not feel convinced that it is the hadith of the Prophet or saying or practice of the Prophet ﷺ, but we also shouldn't tell people such a thing, nor should we openly call people to a practice based on a weak hadith. But we might only practice such a thing if uh, for the purpose of, uh, if it is a good deed which is founded in other hadith and it only has a minor weakness, we might practice such a thing only uh, so that perhaps if it is really from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, then it wouldn't pass us by and we might earn the reward of that practice or that saying or instruction of the Prophet ﷺ. Also, these hadith can only be used, as Al-Hafiz Ibn Hajar Asqalani said, in Fadal Al-A'mal, that means in encouraging the doing of good deeds. Deeds that are already established in the Qur'an and Sunnah, then these hadith may be used to encourage us to do them, to push us or urge us to doing some of these good deeds, but it cannot be used in the matters of Al-Aqidah or Islamic belief, to establish our belief, nor can it be used in the matters of al-halal or haram or those things which are um, declared lawful or unlawful. We cannot use such a weak hadith to declare something lawful and, or unlawful. And this final point is not mentioned in the article that we want to distribute, so please pay attention to it. That if, it, if all of the conditions are fulfilled for the use of a weak, a weak hadith, we must also keep in mind that we should not use a weak hadith in any matter related to our aqidah, Islamic beliefs, or in determining the halal or haram or that which is lawful 
or unlawful. Let me just mention briefly now, uh, also related to the Sunnah, just a couple of sayings because we will distribute, inshallah, an article uh, concerning the importance of the Sunnah in Islam, and that article is dealing specifically with the sayings of the four Imams, that is, Al Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, Al Imam Malik ibn Anas, Rahimahullah, Al Imam Shafi'i, Muhammad ibn Idris. Rahimahullah and Al-Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal Rahimahullah what they said about the Sunnah and its place and its importance and its status Inshallah everyone can read that article in their own time and see the details of what they have said about such and can see how the Imams themselves who many people claim to be following when they contradict the Sunnah or when they contradict the Hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu many times the people say but I'm following Imam Malik or I'm following Imam Shafi'i, or so on. But in fact, Al-Imam Shafi'i, and Al-Imam Ahmed, and Imam Malik, and Imam Abu Hanifa, Rahimahumullah, may Allah uh, have mercy on all of them, didn't tell anyone to follow me in contradiction to the saying or the practice of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but they were followers of the Prophet, strictly following whatever they knew to be from him, and leaving that which they knew to be in conflict with him. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa said, of many of his statements, he said one of them, when a hadith is found to be sahih or authentic, then it is my madhab. Yani when a hadith is found to be sahih, the first category of hadith, the authentic hadith, whenever we found such a hadith, he said, then that hadith is my madhab, it is my opinion or my way. That means even if he didn't know about that hadith, and he had an opinion contradictory to the hadith, he is saying, if later on, you came across such a hadith that my saying or my opinion contradicts, then forget about my saying and my opinion, but really my opinion is that hadith. Uh, Imam Abu Hanifa also said it is not permitted for anyone to accept our views. That means the views of the imams if they do not know from where we got them. Yani if they don't know where, what our opinions are based on, they should know why we are saying what we are saying. What is our proof from the Quran and from the Sunnah and after they know that, then they can follow our opinions, because in fact, in that case, they would be following the Qur'an, and they would be following the Prophet ﷺ, and not following anyone else, which is what we are all required to do, to follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Al-Imam Malik ibn Anas, rahimahullah, he said, Surely I am a mortal, a man, a human being. I make mistakes sometimes, and I am correct sometimes. Therefore, look into my opinions, yeah, and he consider my opinions, and all that agrees with the book, the Qur'an and the Sunnah, accept it, and all that does not agree with the book and the Sunnah, ignore it or reject it. Al-Imam Malik also said, everyone after the Prophet wasallam, yeah, and all the scholars, the Imams and otherwise, will have his sayings accepted or rejected. Some of them would be accepted, some of their sayings, and some of their sayings would be rejected, except for the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all of what he said and all of what he did is by revelation from Allah and it is to be accepted and not rejected. Al-Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah also had many statements even more than the other Imams and from amongst those statements he said the sunnahs of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam of Allah reach as well as escape from every one of us. Yani some of those things from the sunnah we knew about and some of them we didn't know about. So, whenever I voice my opinion or formulate a principle where something 
contrary to my view, exists on the authority of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, then the correct view is what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam has said, and it is then my view. Yani if the hadith didn't reach me, and I don't claim to know all hadith, then whenever I had any opinion or held any position, when something is found contrary to my view from the authority or on the authority of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, then the correct view is that of the Messenger of Allah and then that is also considered my view because had I known of it then I would have also held such a view. And also at Imam Shafi'i said a very important statement that the Muslims are unanimously agreed upon the fact that if a sunnah of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, is made clear to someone it is not permissible for him to leave it for the saying of anyone else. Yani once the sunnah came to you, if you didn't know about it before, when it became clear that this is from the wisdom or the guidance or the sayings or the practice of the Prophet ﷺ, then it is forbidden, it is haram, it is not permissible to leave that saying or practice of the Prophet ﷺ for the saying of someone else. And finally, Imam Ahmed he said, saying similar to the other Imams, he said, do not follow my opinion, neither follow the opinion of Malik, nor Shafi'i, nor Al-Awza'i, nor Al-Thawri, but take from where they took. Yani, don't strictly follow the opinions of the Imams, except in the case that you know where they took them from. In that case, you may follow that their opinions which are based on the Quran and Sunnah. Otherwise, you should take from where they have taken from, that is, from the Quran, the revelation of Allah, and from the Sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, these are some of the many things of the Imams which make clear to us the uh, status of the Sunnah that the Imams themselves didn't consider themselves to be above the Sunnah, nor did they consider that their sayings or their positions or their opinions should be taken in preference to the sayings and practices of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Allah didn't send to us a messenger; He didn't give us a prophet. Uh, for us to abandon anything of what he said, but he sent him to us to be obeyed and to be followed. And Allah says in the Quran, لَقَدَ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنَةٌ لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهَ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخَرَةِ وَذَكَرَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا That certainly you have in the Messenger of Allah a most excellent example or perfect model for anyone who believes in Allah in the last day or who has hope in Allah in the last day that is meeting Allah in the day of judgment and who remembers Allah much. So the example for us is the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and Allah also said وَمَا آتَاكُمْ الرَّسُولِ فَقُذُهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ That whatever the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives to you, take it and whatever he forbids you, then leave it. And there are so many other verses in the Quran which makes us to know that we should follow strictly the sunnah or the way of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in preference to everything and anyone else. Al-Imam Ahmed, he says, وَالسُنَّةُ تُفَسِّرُ الْقُرْآنِ وَهِيَ دَلَائِلُ الْقُرْآنِ That is, that the Sunnah explains the Qur'an and it is a guide to the Qur'an. It contains, the Sunnah contains evidences and indications that help us to understand the meaning of the Qur'an and to interpret it correctly. The role of the Sunnah or the role of the Sunnah yani is not limited to this, but it is one of the primary functions of the Sunnah to explain the Qur'an. The Sunnah also confirms 
much of what is in the Qur'an or supports it and the Sunnah may also bring new rulings that are not found in the Qur'an such as we found in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ the prohibition of a woman marrying a man who is married to her aunt yani her mother's sister or her father's sister this is not found in the Qur'an but found in the Sunnah there is no such prohibition in the Qur'an but it is in the Sunnah so this proves that the Sunnah may also legislate even in addition to that which is in the Qur'an and there are so many other examples of such the explaining of the Qur'an or the explanation of the Qur'an by the Sunnah there are many examples such as the explanation of how to perform the five daily prayers the details of the regulations regarding zakat or charity and the performance or the rights of Hajj and Umrah which all of these things are mentioned in general in the Qur'an but their explanation and detail or clarification is given to us in the Sunnah. So this is one of the main roles of the Sunnah. The Sunnah explains the Quran. Allah says in the Quran in Surah An-Nahl, verse 44, Allah says in the Quran, the meaning of which is, and we have revealed to you that is to Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam as zikr that means we have revealed to you the remembrance or the reminder of the Quran so that you may make clear to bayin it means to fasir to explain or to clarify for the people that which has been revealed to them perhaps they may reflect and benefit from this clarification or explanation also we found uh, that many of the scholars explained or made us to understand the same meaning as this. For example, Al-Awza'i, rahimahullah, one of the great imams of fiqh and hadith, he reported from Hassan ibn Atiyah, rahimahullah, he's saying, كان الوحي ينزل على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ويخبره جبريل عليه السلام بالسنة التي تفسر ذلك He said that the revelation used to descend it used to come down from above the seven heavens to the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم the revelation used to descend and جبريل عليه السلام used to inform the Prophet ﷺ used to bring to him that sunnah as sunnah alati tufassiru thalika yani the sunnah that explains the revelation which was revealed to him the sunnah is the explanation of the Qur'an and some of the scholars made us to know the greatness of the sunnah in that it supports and clarifies and verifies and even adds to that which the Qur'an came with and this is because the Sunnah is also revelation Yani Jibreel he used to descend with the Sunnah just as he descended with the Qur'an and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he said in authentic hadith Utitu Al-Qur'an wa mithrahu I have been given the Qur'an and that which is like it Yani the Sunnah and uh, there are so many proofs of this as Allah said in the Quran about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam 
when he is explaining to us or guiding us or advising us or directing us, don't think that what he says, his sunnah, his hadith, that it is something of his own, from him, his own self. But it is also revelation as Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْحَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحِيُّهَا يعني that he doesn't uh, speak from his own self or from his desires. It is but revelation which has been revealed. So both the Qur'an and the Sunnah are revelation. The revelation is of two types. That which descended uh, as Qur'an, which we recite in our prayers. And that which descended also as a guidance for us, which we don't recite in our prayers. That is the Sunnah. It is the explanation of the Qur'an. And Imam Ahmed also says about the Sunnah, after he explains that the Sunnah is explanation of the Qur'an and a guide to the Qur'an, وَلَيْسَ فِي السُنَّةِ قِيَاسٍ وَلَا تُضْرَبُوا لَهَا الْأَمْثَالِ That there is no qiyas in the Sunnah, nor should we make examples or likenesses for the Sunnah. The meaning of this, there is some, more than one explanation we can say, the first of them and the simplest of those explanations, that there is no qiyas in the Sunnah. As some of the scholars said, that وَلَيْسَ فِي السُنَّةِ قِيَاسٍ أَيْ لَيْسَ فِي الْعَقِيدَةِ قِيَاسٍ وَإِنَّمَا نُصُوصٌ قَطَعِيَّةٌ تَوْقِيفِيَّةٌ لِأَنَّهَا غَيْرَ مَعَقُولَةِ الْمَعْنَى فَلَا تُدْرَقْ بِالْعَقْلِ الْمَحْضَةِ That the meaning of there is no qiyas in the sunnah, it means that there is no qiyas or analogical reasoning in matters of al-aqidah. Perhaps al-Imam Ahmed, sometimes in this book he refers to al-aqidah, as the practices of the Prophet ﷺ and his sayings, and sometimes he refers to it, meaning specifically those things that he taught us about our beliefs. If we explain the meaning of there is no qiyas in the sunnah here as al-aqidah, it is very clear that we cannot use qiyas or analogical reasoning or intellect to determine our Islamic beliefs, because those beliefs are based on certain and definite texts, that is, the Qur'an and the Sunnah only. It is those matters uh, of Aqidah are only derived from the Quran and Sunnah and not from opinion, analogical reasoning, ijtihad or otherwise. Because the Aqidah, there are matters in the Aqidah that cannot be understood by the intellect, by pure intellect. There are matters of the unseen, of the future and of the past and of things that the human being cannot understand that we must believe in, we accept it as being true because it came to us in the Qur'an and the Sunnah and there is no place in the Aqidah in that case for intellectual reasoning or analogical reasoning. But the other meaning of the uh, point here that there is no Qiyas in the Sunnah which is probably more likely what Imam Ahmed meant is that in the matters of the Sunnah meaning the sayings and practices of the Prophet we should not add to those things which came to us through the Sunnah, things that came to us from Qiyas or analogical reasoning, and then claim that these deductions or these rulings or these conclusions that we derive by Qiyas, that they are part of the Sunnah or equal to the Sunnah. 
there is no qiyas in sunnah. Perhaps the more closer meaning is that we cannot uh, include the rulings or deductions or conclusions that are derived by reasoning or intellect. We cannot include it as, in, as a part of the sunnah or attach it to the sunnah or try to compare it as being equal to the sunnah. Qiyas, uh, the legal definition of Qiyas, Qiyas is one of the sources of Islamic law, the first of them being the Qur'an, the second of them being the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, the third of them being al-ijma' or consensus or agreement of the Sahaba or the scholars who came after them, and the fourth of them, al-Qiyas. Al-Qiyas, it is a means of determining a legal ruling. Uh, in a matter whose ruling is not specifically mentioned in the text of the Qur'an and Sunnah. If that matter has been mentioned specifically in the Qur'an and Sunnah, then there is no need for, nor is it permissible or proper, to use the intellect or analogical reasoning or comparison in a matter that has already been decided in the Qur'an or the Sunnah. But in those matters which are not specifically mentioned in the Qur'an or Sunnah, then we may use analogical reasoning to come to a conclusion or a ruling that such a thing is forbidden or such a thing is obligatory, or such a thing is valid or invalid, in that case where there is no specific mention of the matter in the Qur'an or the Sunnah. So, its ruling is determined by comparing it, yani comparing this matter, which we don't find a clear text for in the Qur'an or Sunnah, we compare it to some matter whose ruling is specifically mentioned in the Qur'an or Sunnah, with the condition that these two matters, the one mentioned in the Qur'an or Sunnah, and the one which is not mentioned in the Qur'an and Sunnah, that they have a similar cause or reason. Yani that the cause for the prohibition or the obligation of, of doing such a thing, which we, which we derive by Qiyas, it should have a similar cause or reason to the matter which we found specifically mentioned in the Qur'an and Sunnah that we are comparing it to. An example of this is that someone may say that drugs such as heroin or co- cocaine or crack or marijuana, reefer, or such things, a person may say that these things are forbidden, even though none of these things are specifically mentioned in either the Qur'an nor in the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. But that conclusion might be derived by comparing them to something which is mentioned in the Qur'an or the Sunnah, such as al-khamr, alcohol. Alcohol is mentioned in the Qur'an or Sunnah. So if we know that the reason why alcohol is prohibited is because it intoxicates, it clouds or fogs the mind, then if we found some other intoxicant which also clouds and fogs the mind, then since it shares with alcohol that prohibiting factor, example of the use of al-qiyas or comparison or analogical reasoning. Allah says in the Quran, Ya amanu إِنَّمَا الْخَمْرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ وَالْأَنْسَابُ وَالْأَزْلَامُ رِجْسٌ مِنْ عَمِلِ الشَّيْطَانِ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ That, O you who believe, verily, alcohol and gambling and sacrificing animals in the places where the, the graves or sacrificial places where the idols were, were, were sacrifices were made to idols or otherwise, to honor them or to seek some benefit from them, then these ansab or these places, we should not make our sacrifices in those places. This is prohibited. And also al-azlam, which is divination or seeking to be guided or to make decisions based on 
something like picking arrows from a lot and if the certain arrow comes out you should do something or not do something all of these things Allah says they are rijsun that is something unclean or filthy min amali shaitan from the work of shaitan fajtanibuhu so avoid these things stay far away from them la'allakum tuflihun perhaps you will be successful that is successful in obeying Allah and earning his pleasure and his reward of the paradise so here in the Quran we see that al-khamru is prohibited Allah ordered us to stay away from it and it is staying away from it is a means to attain success in this life and in the next so by comparing uh, these drugs to alcohol which is specifically mentioned in the Quran and they having a similar reason for prohibition we might come to the conclusion that these things are also prohibited or we might even go beyond that and look at some of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which it is reported in the Sahih of Muslim on the authority of Ibn Umar which he said he heard from the Messenger of Allah ﷺ Here this makes us to know he said the Messenger of Allah ﷺ said that everything which intoxicates everything which intoxicates is khamrun is an alcohol or an intoxicant وَكُلُّ مُسْكِرْ حَرَامٌ and everything which intoxicates is forbidden so here we can understand that the reason why something is classified with khamr is because it intoxicates and therefore everything which intoxicates like alcohol is also forbidden in, a, in one of the sayings of Umar radiallahu anhu he mentioned that the prohibition of alcohol was because of five things grapes and dates and honey and wheat and barley which the people in that time used to use to make their alcohol from then Umar said وَالْخَمْرُ مَا خَامَرَ الْعَقْلَ يعني خمر is not only limited to these five things but الخمر is anything which clouds or fogs or covers the mind and makes the person incapable of acting normally and properly so this type of qiyas is used in those matters where we find no text in the Quran and Sunnah but when we use qiyas we do not then say that our conclusion or our ruling is part of the Sunnah or equal to the Sunnah there's no qiyas in the Sunnah and we should not make examples or likenesses for the Sunnah we shouldn't take something from the Sunnah and then try to make a likeness for it to, uh, from our own minds purely from our mind and without that thing actually really being based on the revelation, the Qur'an or the Sunnah as found in the Hadith uh, that is reported by At-Tirmidhi uh, uh, on the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu uh, it is reported that the Prophet, yani he reported from the Prophet وسلم, the Hadith related to uh, the requirement of making wudu from that which has been cooked, from cooked items yani meat that was cooked on fire, it originally required that if anyone ate that meat which was cooked on fire, any meat that was cooked, it should, uh, that person after eating such meat, they should make wudu. Al-wudu mimma masat al-nar. When Abu Huraira narrated this hadith that you should make wudu from that which has been cooked or touched the fire, someone said to him, Ala amartahum an yatawadda'u min al-hamim, then shouldn't you also or did you not also order them to make wudu or ablution or purification from al-hamim from hot water because hot water has also touched the fire then Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu rejecting and censoring this person for saying such a thing 
after he reported the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that you should make wudu from animals which have been cooked on the fire, then that person tried to make some example or parable comparing his own thinking to the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and trying to say that people should make wudu if they use something like hot water or that which was boiled, yani water that was boiled on fire. Abu Huraira sent him saying, O oh, son of my brother, Ya ibn Akhi, إذا حدثتك عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بحديث فلا تضرب له الأمثال يعني if I narrate to you a hadith of the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم then don't make examples for it or likenesses for it or parables for it and try to attach your own thinking or reasoning to the sunnah of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم so we should be warned then that qiyas has a place in the Islamic law, but it should be used carefully and it should not be attached to the sunnah, nor should we try to make it equal to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. In the last few moments, inshallah, let me attempt to explain the last lines of what we mentioned about the sunnah this evening, where Imam Ahmed said, وَلَا تُدْرَكُوا بِالْعُقُولِ وَلَا الْأَحْوَائِ إِنَّمَا هُوَ الْإِتِّبَاعُ وَتَرْكَ الْهَوَى يعني that the sunnah is not grasped nor comprehended by the intellect, by pure intellect nor by the desires of human beings but verily if the sunnah should be followed it should be depended upon, relied upon and it should be given precedence and uh, over everything else and we should abandon our own desires or our own opinions when it is in contradiction or in conflict with the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. One of the great companions of the Prophet ﷺ, Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu, he made clear to us the meaning of this statement that the sunnah is not understood or comprehended by the pure intellect. We cannot make the intellect as a judge over the sunnah. If we can understand anything from the sunnah by our intellect, then that's fine and good. But even if we cannot understand it, or if it doesn't seem right to us from our intellect, then the intellect is not superior to the sunnah, nor is it a judge over the sunnah, because the sunnah is revelation from Allah, and the intellect is the opinions of the human beings. Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, in that which has been authenticated from him, he said, لو كان الدين بالرأي لكان مسح أسفل الخف أولى من أعلاه يعني if our religion was based on الرأي opinion يعني intellect opinion based on our mind or our thinking then we would say it is more right that instead of making مسح or wiping on the top of our socks then we should wipe the bottom of them as you know المسح it means when someone is performing ablution or wudu, then if their feet were cleaned and their socks were put on after cleaning their feet, and they have to make wudu again, there's no need to take off the socks and wipe the feet. But when you make wudu, you may just wipe over the top of your socks. Simply. He said, if opinion or intellect was the judge in our religion, then we wouldn't wipe over the top of our socks, we would wipe the bottom. Because the bottom of the socks is what should be dirty, and that is what should be cleaned according to our intellect. But according to the revelation of Allah, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, when we wipe over our socks uh, in making wudu, 
we wipe over the top and not the bottom. So this is a proof that the religion or the revelation is not based on our thinking or our minds, no matter how intelligent we may be, but our minds have to be used to understand the sunnah in subject, yani being subject to and secondary to the sunnah or the revelation of Allah through the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Also, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu, in one of his statements, he made us to know that we should submit ourselves to the sunnah and not follow our desires. He said, أَصْبَحَ أَحْلُ الرَّأِيِ أَعْدَاءَ السُّنِنِ أَعْيَتْهُمْ الْأَحَادِيثِ أَنْ يَعْوُهَا وَتَفَلَّتَتْ مِنْهُمْ أَنْ يَرْوُوهَا فَاسْتَقْبَلُوا أَوْ فَاسْتَبَقُوهَا بِالرَّأِيِ That the people of opinion who prefer their opinions based on their intellect, those people became the enemies of the Sunnah. The Hadith, يعني, it, when they preferred their opinions over the Sunnah, the Hadith became difficult for them to contain, or to memorize, or to understand. So the Hadith escaped from them. They couldn't narrate it, and they فَاسْتَبَقُوهَا يعني they uh, left the sunnah or gave preference over the sunnah بِالرَّأِي by their personal opinions. So Omar is making us to know that if the person doesn't have the right attitude or frame of mind in reference to the sunnah, submitting themselves to the sunnah knowing that the best example and the most knowledgeable of all human beings are the messengers of Allah and the last of them is Muhammad wasallam. We accept what has been revealed to him through the Qur'an and that which came to us through his sunnah. If we don't have this frame of mind or this attitude of submitting our desires and our feelings and our opinions to the sunnah, then we will become an enemy to the sunnah. It will escape from us. We will not be able to contain it or to narrate it or to memorize it. And in that case, we would end up yeah, relying totally on our opinions and abandoning the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. In closing, let me just read to you the words of the Shaykh, one of the scholars of our contemporary time, Abdullah ibn Jibreen, Hafizahullah, may Allah protect and preserve him. He said in reference to these words of Imam Ahmed that the Sunnah explains the Quran and it is the indications or guide to the Quran and there is no qiyas in the Sunnah and we shouldn't make examples for it, nor is it understood by the intellect, nor by our desires, but it should be followed and our desires should be left. He said that the sunnah, it means, in conclusion, the sunnah, it means, uh, here, the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, his sayings and actions. Uh, and that sunnah explains the Qur'an because Allah ordered him to explain the Qur'an, as we mentioned in the ayat, that the Qur'an or the revelation or the dhikr was sent to him, so that he may explain to the people what has been revealed to them. Uh, this sunnah which explains the Qur'an is the sayings and practices of the Prophet ﷺ and his approvals which have, been na- which have been reported from him authentically and reliably with complete chains and through uh, narrators who are trustworthy and having good memories. That sunnah is a sharh or explanation of the meanings of the Qur'an and clarification of the meanings of the Qur'an. And whoever sticks to the Qur'an 
and doesn't try to attach to it something outside of it which is not equal to it, then that per- this is the meaning of la qiyas. Yani there's no qiyas in the sunnah. It means we shouldn't yani, compare anything outside of the sunnah to it or attach it to the sunnah. Uh, then he said whoever sticks, every, every person who sticks to that sunnah and considers the sunnah sufficient for him and he doesn't feel that he needs anything other than the sunnah, then he will find that the sunnah really will be sufficient for him and it will help him and support him and protect him and whoever goes beyond the sunnah and tries to take something in addition to the sunnah or above the sunnah or tries to add something to the sunnah then that person is considered from the people of bid'ah or innovation and this is the meaning of the saying that every bid'ah it is or every innovation is astray it means that the people who add to the sunnah something that is not from it then they would be astray Every person who follows the sunnah, then that person will be on the correct path. And whoever yani, adds to the sunnah, he will uh, be mistaken and he will go astray. Whoever follows the sunnah, he will be on guidance and light from Allah. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. I think we have five minutes remaining. If there are any questions, inshallah, you may send them over.